0: With us, our special speaker, uh, it's a particular joy for Faith and I to invite Jonathan, who's no stranger to Grace Church. In fact, he, he holds a dual membership, being a graduate student in his last year in seminary down in North Carolina. He has just a few classes left, and, uh, and I mentioned, Jonathan, from time to time, when you're preaching at the Chinese church down there, and, and he mentioned to me yesterday, he's, he's got three preaching uh, engagements the next three or four weeks. So he's very busy with that and his studies, his work, and as an intern in his church, and I don't know how he does it. He tells me about it, wears me out, and Andrea is here as well, and we welcome you and come, and the Lord bless the word through you. John. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I guess, yeah, I don't really need double mics. You guys can probably hear me with just the one. Right? Hello? Oh, okay. (laughs) Some people now turning their Bibles to Psalm 3 and Proverbs 3 or something else because they heard 3 but nothing else. Um, When the facts of life come into contact with the facts of your faith, how do you respond? I want to start off this message by telling you three stories. Um, First story is a a personal story. About 14 years ago, I I met a man by the name of Matt Klotzbach. He uh, was a Naval Academy midshipman. He had attempted to go to Naval Academy for many years and had finally gotten in. To him, the Naval Academy was the greatest thing in the world. Um, And so when he was there, he was truly excited to be at the Academy. Even though he was far from his family, he was uh, uh, in California. And while I was at the Academy, it wasn't long before he met a girl by the name of Sarah Zabolsky. And though he loved the Academy a great deal, it wasn't long before the Academy became his second greatest love behind that of Sarah. In July of 2001, after not seeing each other for a while because Matt was away in an internship with the Academy, they reunited and they realized marriage was not far off. And he would talk to me Sometimes he would come up here, and we would talk about the academy, and he would always try to sell the idea of the academy to me. And to me, it seemed like way too much formal wear, not enough girls at the school. <laughs> <laughs> and he was really growing in, in his walk with the Lord, and he was excited about going home to, to California for <clears throat> just a matter of days to help encourage his parents before he'd come back and start his senior year of school. I still remember the morning my dad came in to my room, hugged me in such a way to restrain me and began to tell me Matt was killed last night by a drunk driver. He had become like an older brother to me. And through my middle school and high school years, he was a very steadying influence. I began to wrestle with, why would God do this? What was he doing? Didn't God know that this man was going to be a naval pilot? Didn't God know he would marry my sister and be my brother-in-law? Didn't God know that Matt was growing and was doing good at the halls of the academy? When I heard this news, it put me into a tailspin. You know, I believe with all my heart that God is good. And I also believe that God is sovereign. Sovereign. And that somehow God was involved with the death of my dear friend. And more than that, I believe that God loves my sister. And I believe that God loves the Klotzbach family. And I believe that he wants the souls of those at the university or the academy to be saved. And here was a man growing in faith and just a few months earlier and led his roommates to the lord it was influencing many was killed now if he was killed in a naval pilot accident i think i could have understood that if he was in a war was taken hostage and wouldn't recant the united states or his faith was killed i could have understood that probably would have taken some time for sure but a car accident by a drunk driver seemed about as pointless And as inglorious as stepping in front of a bus. You find that when the facts of life come into conflict with the facts of your faith, you begin to enter doubt. Deep doubt. I'm going to tell you a second story. When I was at the Moody Bible Institute, there was a certain former student who'd become world famous as a New Testament scholar. We started reading some of his works. And he was... Crucial on understanding the formation of our New Testament text. In the 1970s, this professor became a devout evangelical fundamentalist. He got saved, went to Moody, went to Wheaton, and then went to Princeton Theological Seminary where he studied under probably the most famous New Testament scholar of the 20th century, Bruce Metzger. And While he was there, he did his MDiv and did his PhD under Metzger. They began to question with, thinking the validity of the Bible, and began to accept more liberal forms of Christianity to make sense of his study. Fifteen years later, while pastoring a church, this man realized the charade had to be over. It wasn't enough to just to accept liberal Christianity; he couldn't accept Christianity at all. It was at this point that Bart Ehrman left all forms of Christianity and became agnostic. Perhaps some of you don't know who that is. Uh, where I live in Raleigh, Durham, Bart Ehrman is, well, he's been on The Daily Show a few times, but he is, uh, he's a force to be reckoned with. Um, he was Metzger's greatest student, and now rejects Christianity. He's written books like Misquoting Jesus, um, all of these ideas that really destroy um, someone's faith in the text. He'll start a freshman class off at UNC He's a, uh, he's a professor there, and he'll say, how many of you people believe in the Bible? 90% of the people raise their hands. At the end of the per- semester, he'll say, how many people believe in the Bible? 40% of the people will raise their hands. This is a man who lived in a dorm mm, 200 yards from mine, just a few, 20 years before me, 30 years before me. But the reason he couldn't accept it was not the validity of the Bible. It was because as a pastor, when he would counsel people and when people would come into his office, he couldn't make sense of why bad things would happen to good people. It had nothing to do with the Bible. The Bible has just become a vehicle for him to express his discontent with God. It was because he could not make sense of his faith and the reality that exists out his front door as attractive as christianity is my experience keeps me from embracing it let me tell you a third story i am going to tell you a story about a man by the name of david david grew up in a large family he had eight boys two girls and when he grew up his father was much much older and advanced in years they didn't have much of a relationship. But talk about a generational gap. What existed between them must have been an ocean or a chasm at least as big. His, tr- his brothers treated him like the runt of his family. One day a prophet came to town. And that must have been a really big deal to have a prophet come to town. it's a really big deal when someone like Joyce Meyer comes to town. And so if a prophet comes, that would be a huge deal. <laughs> I'm not taking a shot at anybody. But, um, so Samuel comes to town. And this prophet knew he came with the expectation of anointing a new king. <clears throat> and the problem was, there was already a king, Saul. And he knew that had, <laughs> Samuel knew that if Saul knew he was coming to anoint a king, he'd kill him. So he said he was coming to sacrifice. And he did, but it was a cover. He was coming to anoint a new king. And with God's help, he was able to narrow the field down in Bethlehem to Jesse's family. And they prayed out the boys, all incredibly talented, all Abercrombie models and MIT professors at the same time, which is amazing. And they brought out all the boys before Samuel, and they were great candidates, right? They were great. But none of them were the one. And then there's David, he's out with the sheep. And he was the one. And you guys probably know that story. And Samuel anointed David to be the next king of Israel. And, and this, the anointing worked. Because in the very next story of the Bible, we find Jesse saying, David, take this food to your brothers who are fighting. And when he showed up, they were fighting the Philistines. And the chief of the Philistines was a man by the name of Goliath. And Goliath was a very tall man, a very big man. And he made a proposal. He said... Let's have a heavyweight fight, heavyweight championship fight. Your best fighter will come out and fight me, and it's a winner take all. So if I win and I kill him, then you become our slaves. But if, I, or if you win and kill me, we become your slaves. People were terrified. I mean, it was massive. And the man that was head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel was Saul. But Saul didn't want to fight. He had been disobedient, and through the hole made by his disobedience leaked all of his courage. And so he agrees to let this kid go and fight. And David knew that God had promised he would kill the giants from Gad hundreds of years before, and Joshua had tried and left this little enclave unconquered. And so David went with the promise in his pocket and anointing on his head. What a great victory. David was slain defeated, the anointing worked, right? The people were so enamored with him that he became a hero. He became the subject of some of their popular songs. I I was trying to think of a a quick context of who would sing a song. For some reason, the only person that came to mind was Kenny G, who would... But he hasn't been in vogue, and I don't know if he's ever was in vogue. Anyways, whoever it was would sing songs, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his ten thousands. That's because he was anointed by God. That's because the anointing worked. Then other things happened. David got into the palace. Saul would get these demonic headaches, and the only thing that would soothe him or be therapeutic was harp music. And finally, someone in the palace said, you know, Saul, there's this boy in Bethlehem who plays a pretty mean harp. Call him. Before you know it, David is in the heart in, in the palace, playing music for the king. And the anointing worked. Even more interesting, Saul, for bad reasons, gave him his daughter to marry David, Michael. She was enamored with David. She was madly in love. I mean think David was the Prince William of Israel. I mean, he was I mean, <laughs> killing lions, killing giants. Then he was an incredible poet and an incredible musician. And, uh, I mean, everything he did seemed to turn to gold. And here's Michael, the girl who, you know, uh, finally, you know, all these girls are throwing, they reading his Twitter account to find out where he's going to be, throwing themselves in front of him, and she gets to be the one to marry him. And then who's his best friend, Jonathan, the king's son? He's thrown into king's space. When you're anointed by God, everything just seems to work well, Right? Right. A lot of pastors today would tell you that. A lot, of, a lot of different messages would have you believe that. God wants you to be blessed. Not always. I mean, he does want you to be blessed. But it doesn't always work out well. Because Saul became more and more jealous and on two different occasions tried to kill David. He fled under the wilderness and the mountains for 10 years with public enemy number one. From the very people he was supposed to to lead. Through his stealth, through his cunning, through his wit, he was able to survive. And I'm sure there were, out, there, there were times out in the wilderness he began to think, where is this anointing? Yeah. But as you ultimately know, he became the king. Expanded the border of Israel south and north, further than they had ever been and further than they have been since. But then there was that affair with Bathsheba. And as a result of the intercourse, they had a baby. And God said that as a punishment, the baby would die. David could not handle this. For days and nights, he would pray. He would beg God to save the life of his child. He must have said, I was the one who sinned. Take my life. Don't take it out on the baby. But the baby died. And then a little while later, one of his sons... Amnon became infatuated with his half-sister Tamar. Tamar. Devastating sin. Invited her over to serve food. Raped her. And threw her aside like she was garbage. You can read it in the Bible and can understand how bad it is. But you can imagine if it was your daughter what that must have done to David. Tamar's brother was a young man by the name of Absalom. For two years, he nursed his wrath and kept it red hot. And then saw that, that Amnon was killed, and he went on to rebel against his father. He was charismatic, he was handsome, he got a great following, and he went against his dad. David had to flee the capital city, and finally there was a battle on the east side of Jordan. Absalom, with his flowing locks, was caught in a tree and was cut down by David's general, Joab. David was devastated. We read that at an isolated portion and think, oh, justice well served. But Absalom was the darling of David's heart. After hearing even what his son had done, David went in above the city gates and kept sobbing, Absalom, oh Absalom, my son. Absalom, my son, I wish I had died instead of you. The anointing was there, and God was with him. As much in David's life, it must have made him wonder. If I am God's king and God's favorite, how do you explain the likes of this? Whenever the facts of your faith come into conflict with the facts of life, you find that your faith is in peril. How do you handle it? More importantly, how did David handle it, perhaps? Let me look down here at Psalm 131. David begins the psalm by saying he has learned not to concentrate on great matters too wonderful for him. Now, there's no doubt that David had a lot of questions. But he wouldn't so concentrate so much on those questions and those problems, he would put himself against God. That's what he means when he says, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. A person with eyes raised high prideful. A person with a, pr- a proud heart puts himself, I'm sorry, a person with eyes raised too high looks down at others and they're prideful. And a person with a proud heart puts himself at the center of his universe. But whenever you have a question and it won't go away and you find yourself attacking God, that is the essence of pride. Because suddenly what happens is you are now the prosecutor And you put God on the witness stand, and then you switch to the judge and jury. And there's no more monstrous nonsense than when the creature sits in judgment of the creator. David says, I won't do that. You know, there are great and wonderful things, but I'm not going to stand here in judgment of God. Martin Luther said, if you want to get anywhere in the Christian life, you have to crucify the question why. I'm not so sure he's right up until the 18th century when people became ill they thought it was an issue of blood and so they would take blood from a person it was the cure that killed them and it wasn't until Louis Pasteur came along and asked the question why disease <laughs> and as a role came up as, as a result came up with the germ theory and advanced medicine by leaps and bounds sometimes you need to ask why in the early 1970s, sociologists were concerned about a uh, tragic decision that John F. Kennedy had made. See, so Mr. Kennedy allowed an invasion of Cuba that was misconstrued. It was called the, uh, the Bay of Pigs. And sociologists wondered how he could make such a stupid mistake. Looking back, it had no chance of succeeding. How could the president, the president surrounded by such brilliant advisors, make such a stupid mistake? And they discovered in the group of 10 that were making the decision, there were two that had great reservations and stated them. Bobby Kennedy, who was the attorney general and kind of guard dog for his brother, said, look, John's determined to go. Are you with us or against us? This is was such a tight-knit group of people that dissenting stopped. But none of that answered why that happened. Sociologists later came up with the idea of groupthink. And there's a group of people that that love each other and are close together, Uh, it's one of the most dangerous places to be because sometimes you go along to get along, and you're more loyal to each other than you are to your convictions. Sometimes asking the question, why, is exactly the right question to ask. David asked that question in Psalm 122, surrounded by enemies. He begins the psalm by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A thousand years later, a descendant of David hanging on a Roman execution rack asked that question too. Sometimes the question why is the sob of a broken heart. Sometimes why is a pain sigh. The difficulty comes when the question mark gets turned like a dagger and is pointed at the heart of God. And David says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to concern myself with matters too great for myself. I will not respond to God with arrogance and pride. And then he says the second thing. He says, I've stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Notice it doesn't say a nursing child. Nursing child wants the mother for the milk, but a weaned child just wants its mother. Spurgeon, when, when speaking on this passage, um, spoke about a time he ran into a, a pastor, or an older minister. And the exchange went like this. The minister said, an old minister said, when I read this passage in the psalm, my soul is even as a weaned child. I wish it were true of me. But I think I should have to make an alteration of one syllable. And then it would exactly describe me at times. He said, my soul is even as a weaning rather than a weaned child. For said he, with the infirmities of old age, I fear I get fretful and peevish and anxious. And when the day is over, I do not feel that I have been in so calm, resigned, and trustful a frame of mind as I could desire. A weaned child is one that has been calmed. A weaning child is one that is frantic and searching for its fear to be absolved by some kind of sort of shelter, or comfort. David says he's a weaned child. There's nothing as, as comforting as watching uh, a baby resting in a parent's arm. There's nothing as frantic as watching, you know, you go to the retail shopping center and the baby that's freaking out gets everyone stressed out. Everyone sees it going frantic and <laughs> doesn't understand that everything's okay. And David says, I I'm a wean child. Even in Psalm 3, his, brother, or his, brother, his son is seeking to kill him, and he writes, but you, O Lord, are shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. How about this? I lay down and slept. How about that? Your own son kicks you out of the city, seeking to kill you. Can you say, I lay down and slept? I woke again for the Lord to sustain me? A lot of times I can't because the circumstances of my life dictate how much of a weaned child I am. There's the anointing there based upon my circumstances. And his own son, the pride of his life has turned on him and he writes, I lay down and slept, I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of the thousands of people who have set themselves against me. In the course of his life, He was actively acting as a weaned child. He actively was going to God's side daily, not just when things were amiss. You know, he threw down the calamities of life, and it's like, well, I would have run by. I had nothing else to do. But you can do that and not feel distant from God when you do that day by day when things aren't just amiss. And you can seek real shelter. Even says, I've learned to do that. One of my nieces, Harper, some of you guys may probably have met her, but um, if you didn't know, she she doesn't like to be held. She's really adorable. But she loves to play hard to get. And she's very independent, very autonomous, does her own thing, very stubborn. And um, my mom, who will remain nameless in this illustration, um, she uh, My mom makes a lot of blueberry muffins for her. Uh, Too many, I think, at times. More than she ever made me, of course. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure my mom does it to help soften my stubborn niece's heart and to make her hug my mom and appreciate her. To make her feel like she can come in and embrace such a stubborn girl. And a little over a year ago, a different niece of mine Britton, who was a toddler, had heart surgery. And she was born with two holes in her heart. She had to wait till she was old enough, big enough to have open heart surgery. where well, the doctor would come, he would open her chest, put her little body in a machine, stop her heart, repair the holes, and restart her little heart all over again. The little holes that were causing her to grow abnormally slow. She was in the hospital. My my brother and sister-in-law, Mandy, spent as much time with Britton as was possible. And Britton, being quite young, longed for the comfort of her parents being in an unfamiliar hospital. She wanted the comfort of my brother and the embrace of my sister-in-law. She would grab at them, and as you know, she had questions. I mean, David, my brother, would tell her quite often how much he loved her. She would probably think being tied to a machine with wires and things into her arm would probably say, but dad, what does this have to do with love? What is this? This is closer to child abuse than it is to being a love. What do you say to a young child? Are you supposed to say, well, this is how chromosomes work and because you developed abnormally inside your mom's womb, you have holes in your heart, you're lagging behind, you're in the bottom two or three percentile of your growth and therefore we have to open your heart, stop it and and then plug up the holes and restart it again, you'll be fine. She could have accepted the answers of undergoing such extensive procedures. (laughs) She would sob and cry David would hold her tight. You know, you can do that with God. He is sovereign and he is alive. And things occur that you cannot understand. But it is possible to climb up into the lap of God and be comforted. Not because he gives you answers, but because he gives you himself. Years later... God would send his son, who was later a a son of David, who would hang on a cross and as mentioned before, question his father. The father would send his son not to answer the questions of why original sin, or why some are sick, or why tragedy happens, but to give us his son. Politicians give ambassadors, companies give sales reps, and God gives us his son, Not just to have as a mouthpiece, but his son's life. He didn't come to give answers. He didn't come as just an oracle, but as a sacrifice. And when he was here, he wept with Martha, and he embraced children. He accepted prostitutes, and he dined with tax collectors. He touched lepers, and they became clean. And He didn't say, well, you became a leper because such and such. And they, I mean, let's not be inhumane people. When you're a leper, you're expelled from society. You can't see your family. You have to live outside with other lepers until you die. They probably wrestled with the question, why? I would have far more than why did I lose my job? Why is my arm falling off and I can't talk to people? And I'm out living outside the city. And God didn't come and say, this is the reason. But he came and he ministered and he touched them and he healed them. And then he died for them. David said, I've learned to do that. To quiet my troubled soul in the lap of God. And he finishes by saying, oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. When the facts of life and the facts of faith seem out of kilter, put your hope and trust in the Lord. And if you're here this morning carrying a burden too heavy for you, questions about the way you've been treated in your growing up years or anything recent, those are natural questions. Don't turn them against God. Draw near to Him. Let Him comfort you. The importance of this is to know God, not to know why about God all the time. You'll never know. Mrs. Einstein was married to one of the brightest minds in human history. Someone came up to her one day. People would marvel about his theory of relativity, his brilliance, Talk about him today. We have his brain in some kind of jar and study how brilliant he was. Mrs. Einstein was approached by a reporter once who asked, Mrs. Einstein, do you understand your husband's theory of relativity? She said, No. But I understand Albert Einstein, and that's all that matters. Oh Israel, put your hope in the Lord in spite of your experiences. You do not have to know God's elaborate plan, but you should know him. And that makes all the difference. Let's pray. Actually, we can stand in prayer as we dismiss here for this week. Dearly, Father, Lord, I, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your active love towards us. That while we were still sinners, you died for us. God, I thank you for your pursuit. I thank you for your love. I thank you for life itself. And while we were content in nailing you to a cross and absolving any problems we had towards hating you, you put out your hands for us. God, thank you for for not giving up on us. Thank you for pursuing over and over. God, and even while we don't appreciate you, even here today, you still are inclined to love us and are waiting to see us face to face to spend eternity with you. God, we live in a world of death. We live in a world where the norm is goodbyes. But we will see you in heaven where there will always be a continuous time together. I thank you. Lord, I I pray that even this week, our, our mission is about sharing that good news with other people. How could we keep such a secret? Help us to share it in our lives and in our words. I pray. Give us a good day of fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.